Welcome to Work and the Future, a podcast about tomorrow, with your host, Linda Nazareth. Well, hello, and thank you for joining us today. AI, artificial intelligence. It really is the topic of the moment when it comes to work. We've talked about it on this podcast, but we're going to keep talking about it. A lot of discussion so far when it comes to AI and work has really centered around how jobs will change and how jobs might disappear. But you know what? We also need to think about what jobs might be added or created. According to my guest today, there's more than one, but one of the most important is something called an AI ethicist. Do companies need an AI ethicist? Maybe they do. Uh, Maybe there are so many questions now about how to responsibly use AI. This is something that we have to put at the top of the considerations. Maybe it's something for organizations to think about. Maybe boards need to be briefed about it. I don't know. There's a lot of boxes, I guess, we've opened. And we do need people to guide us through this. So I was really glad to be joined on this episode by Cliff Yurkowicz. He's head of strategy at a company called Phenom, which is a company that puts people into jobs, basically. So he's really close to what's happening in terms of labor market needs. And he does see this role as something that will be important, maybe hard to fill, but certainly something that is necessary. I talked to him about that. I also talked to him about how jobs are changing in general, how the labor market is going to change because of AI. And I really enjoyed it because he has a positive view of things, not a let's be scared of the future view, but a positive view of how things will evolve. Had a really great discussion with Cliff. Please stay with us to hear it. Well, do companies now need an AI ethicist? To talk about that, I'm joined by Cliff Yurkovich. He's head of strategy at Phenom. Cliff, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for having me, Linda. You know, this is such an interesting question. Um, This is a future of work podcast and really interesting to me, the skills we're going to need going forward. I'm interested to know how you started getting interested in this area. So can you tell me about your background and how you got here? Sure. So at heart, I'm, I'm a technologist and and I guess you would call me an AI anthropologist as well just sort of understanding how that technology fits into the human centric ecosystem you know and so you know for me that's a natural progression of uh, this sort of scalable innovation uh, as it comes to market how do we look at that in ways that retain a certain set of principles uh, that, that we can talk about but but certainly keeping the human at the forefront of of how these technologies get used and implemented. And so it it is a direct correlation to the work that I do every day. Interesting. Well, we're talking about AI and, you know, this just really triggers so many emotions right now. People are scared of it. They think it's a negative thing. When you think of it, I mean, how would you describe it in terms of what it will mean for the workforce and the economy? Yeah, I think there's no doubt that we, we need to be conscious of any innovation and the harms that it could potentially bring so that we surface those um, where the risk and the challenge is and and make sure that, again, you know, as I sort of started this conversation, ensuring that we have a set of principles by which we which we adopt and evolve any technology. And so this one in particular certainly has the opportunity to discriminate against all of us if left unchecked. Uh, and I think that's where the justifiable fear 
uh, is sort of coming from. The reality is it, it has not shown itself um, to be that, uh, you know, invasive or detrimental to, to workers. In fact, it's actually just the opposite. I mean, artificial intelligence has actually been around since the 1940s and 50s. Obviously, the scale of it now is much more significant. Um, but, you know, it is it is uh, lived in healthcare for quite a long time. It certainly lived in finance for quite a long time. Um, you know, we use, everyone uses, interacts with artificial intelligence somewhere between 10 and 100 times a day. So this is already embedded in what we do. The fear comes in when you when you start to personalize its impact, meaning uh, it doesn't have the potential to take my work away from me. Uh, and I think that's where the, the, the fear comes in. The reality is that's that's not it's happening in pockets, very, very small pockets um, where you know you are in work that is entirely repeatable or it can be done better by a machine. If you look at how we build you know automobiles fifty years ago and look at that today, every auto manufacturer is using artificial intelligence in the manufacturing process. Yet there are more auto manufacturing jobs today than there were 50 years ago. Um, so it, it, we have to look at not only this innovation, but every innovation that has ever preceded us and how we handled that. Uh, how was it embedded and aligned in, in terms of our work and, and the output and the benefit it is to humanity? So I actually see a much bigger benefit while let's, yes, keep an eye on where the risks are um, to ensure that, in, at least in in my world, that we keep humans in the loop. You know, I agree with you. Technology has always created jobs. You think about banks putting in automatic tellers and people worried about finance, and now there's a lot more jobs in finance. But artificial intelligence is a little different, right? There's, as you say, a risk that this can discriminate against us. Or What's the worst case? Let's get that out of the way. If we don't get a handle on this, what are the things you worry about? Yeah. The, the, so the way I talk about this is in, is in terms of looking back at those other innovations. Like you just mentioned one very simple one we talk about all the time, that there was going to be a fear that the ATM or in the Philadelphia area, we used to call it a back machine, money access center, um, you know, depending on showing my age now, but, uh, you know, that it would replace the live teller in the bank. Well, here we are using, you know, ATMs now for 30, 40 years, and I still have a bank with people in it, and I still go there and talk to them. But the convenience of that technology allows me to do the more repeatable tasks. The fear is that uh, is the speed at which this technology may be adopted. That's the problem that, that, uh, that we should be first identifying. Um, because if you look at, you know, generative AI as the example, you know, nobody knew much about generative AI this time last year. Now everybody knows about it. And but if then if you ask them how much have they actually adopted it, the adoption is about 10% of the workforce is using generative AI in their work. And nobody has really been wholesale replaced. You know, there's there haven't been, you know, whole swaths of a particular role that are just gone in every company in the world because of generative AI. So the speed in which we adopt something is the important factor. Can human beings adapt to these new technologies in meaningful ways and upskill ourselves and, and again, make ourselves valuable in coordination, in partnership with these technologies? Because they're not going anywhere. They are going to grow. We just have to recognize we need to respond a little bit faster, right? Like the, the automobile age took about 30 years to put the horse and carriage trade out of business. The computer age 
you know, took about 10 years to put the typewriter business and the word processing business out of business. Um, this is happening in one or two years, maybe three years. So speed is what has people afraid, really. They may not be able to identify that, but that's what we have to talk about. So we need to be responding right now um, in, in how we look at the, how these technologies will be adopted in our work and, and ensure that we're creating human value um, while we adopt them. Now, of course, there's concerns. This will replace all kinds of jobs, graphic designers. You know, that was something I just saw, but like really in every field, finance and health and everything else. Let's look at the positive here. What jobs do you see being created? Yeah, I think, you know, there's the high level piece, you know, talking about AI ethicists is probably one of the more common ones that we're starting to see. Um, and there are other roles in there, you know, one of them also being the, the human AI, you know, team lead. So you're going to have your, you know, your human element of your team, and then you're, you will have eventually, you know, what we're calling a cobot, copilot, you know, a sort of digital duplicate of oneself that we would also work with that also needs to be managed. So, so people that understand these technologies and, and are able to work with them at a, in a team setting, getting the benefit of both, uh, allowing humans to focus on really important work in the organization while the AI component is doing the more mundane and repetitive tasks. Um, some of that might be content curation versus con content you know, creation, which the AI actually does a very good job with some content curation. Human beings are far better at curation because we live in an experiential world. But I think that the, 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 the most important role that I'm seeing is, is that AI ethicist. Okay, let's talk about this. This is AI ethicist. It's not a job title we hear very often. Uh, but you think that companies are going to need someone like this. What, what does that role entail? Yeah, so it's going to entail a few different things. I mean, the, the first thing, uh, again, is developing a set of guiding principles for the organization to uh, to purchase or develop, implement, and maintain, you know, an AI, ML, artificial intelligence, machine learning layer to their work, right? So that's the, that's the piece that's really important. Out of those guiding principles, what we're seeing the AI ethicists really focus in on is, again, keeping the human being at the center, right? Not not necessarily looking to replace people, but to maybe augment their tasks. So we see task replacement as the most viable next step. So, you know, in my world, um, you know, at Phenom, where, where we have created the world's leading artificial intelligence recruiting and retention platform for organizations, we look at recruiters as one of the groups that where their work is going to change. You know, that a piece of that might be, um, I used to manually write job descriptions. I used to manually examine and write notes on an interview and give feedback. Well, AI is very good at actually doing those tasks. So that allows me as a recruiter to actually focus more on the human, the core values, the culture piece of, of you know, helping someone um, you know, get work or keep work within my organization. That's far more meaningful than it is just writing a job description. So that's the kind of thing that we're talking about. In, in my view, um, over the next three years, somewhere between 30 and 60% of every what we will call knowledge worker role, uh, which is like a recruiter would fall into, you know, up to about 60% of their tasks can be augmented, some of them replaced with artificial intelligence-based tools, leaving that recruiter to focus on the more human side of, of helping people identify, grow skills, 
you know, move about the organization, develop a better culture, um, you know, things that are actually far more important than, you know, some of this busy work with data that machines just are better at doing, you know, so the AI ethicist is the person that would, you know, obviously keep the human being at the center of it, create the ethical guidelines uh, for, for which these, these tools will be uh, purchased or evaluated, purchased, um, and then audited because there will be an audit requirement as a lot of the new laws that are going to come into, into play here in the next year, um, you know, will, will require. And, and most importantly are, are two other things. Uh, ensure that there's uh, a reduction of bias in in any of these HR-based people processes, um, as well as creating a more fair playing field. So people have an equal opportunity to compete for meaningful work. And the last thing I think that's important from an AI ethicist perspective is um, you know, going to the marketplace and saying, as a company, if I'm an AI ethicist at a particular company, you know, here's what we're doing to make this workplace fair and to create meaningful work and ensure that you have it for the long term because because we're planning around that. So that we we call that explainability. An AI ethicist would primary role public facing would be representing the company and showing and demonstrating how seriously they take the human in the loop, human in the forefront. Um, and explaining how they're using artificial intelligence, which, by the way, is also a requirement. A lot of a lot of these upcoming laws uh, have baked into the legislation. So um, th- that's that's the most important piece. So that's it's it becomes um, the this individual this role becomes the center point of what AI you use, how you use it, and the guiding principles in which you're going to scale it. So, what kind of background would this person have? Where do you? How do you become an AI ethicist? I, I think it's going to start with obviously having a background in the data sciences. You really have to understand how these technologies are constructed, um, how data is leveraged and used, uh, and and also very very importantly, how do you audit it? Because some of the challenge that we have in this space right now is there isn't enough data to measure some of what we call adverse impacts or outcomes, and that will grow over time. That's why it's really important for someone in this role to to have at least some training and background as a data scientist. But the other side of it is, you know, you you think of, uh, you know, Jeff Goldblum's character, Ian Malcolm in Jurassic Park. And he was sort of this uh, almost acting as both an antagonist and protagonist at the same time. He would constantly just ask the question is, yes, we can do that, but really, should we be doing that? And that's what this person, the other side of this skill has to be. And it is a bit of a politician understanding all sides of the business and what the goals of the business are, um, but also, you know, helping the organization's leadership move in the direction that, again, will keep humans at the forefront of things while helping achieve what those business goals are. And, And obviously what the person goals are for each of those individuals in the organization, because everybody, for the most part, wants to grow and they want to make more money. They want to get more benefits. They want to be able to have more meaningful work. All of those things need to be satisfied. So you both need to be, uh, you know, a, a scientist and a politician at the same time. And that doesn't seem to me to be an easy fit. There seems it, to be. It's not an easy fit. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So let's talk about how this might work. We have ethicists in some organizations already, correct? Medical ethicists. We, yeah, we have, I mean, if you think about what a medical ethicist does, th- this is a very similar role. We can talk about, you know, anyone that's in, let's call it a, a 
position or a role that um, helps determine risk and 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 helps also guide the organization to what is the safest path, you know, to, to manage that risk. Because there's risk in everything that we do. Medical ethicists are, are really good at saying, you know, I have a doctor on one side, I've got a patient and their family on the other. I come into this, you know, your conversation as kind of a mediator to help translate what the physician might be saying to the family and and vice versa to say, let's let's come to an agreement because there are risks in a particular protocol or whatever it might be. Um, what is the path moving forward that is the most ethical where where we are transparently describing you know the risk and the outcomes because we know them, we have measured them, we have predicted them, uh, and and then guiding both parties. And you know, in some cases, the AI ethicist will be put in very challenging situations. To your point, it, it won't be an easy role, uh, but putting in, in challenging situations where um, you know they are have to fall back on those guiding principles to say we can't move in that direction because this is what we agreed to as an organization. And what does that mean in terms of the outcome of the business or, you know, the use of AI, but that's an important stopgap that we have to see, because if you, if you are to believe some of the, uh, you know, some of the promoters of artificial intelligence um, and the talk around the loss of jobs, you, I think it's important to also understand their motivation. Um, so if you look at, you know, some of the financial institutions that might be investing in these technologies, of course, it, it is probably in their best interest to get the biggest return off that investment. And that may mean, you know, more repetition of AI inside of an organization versus human support. That's what we've got to guard against, right? This is what the auto workers are guarding against. It's what the Screen Actors Guild is guarding against. It's what the Writers Guild has guarded against. They've all looked at, and they're the, the kind of tip of the spear of this, these organized uh, labor unions or organized labor in general is saying, we agree these technologies are going to be helpful, but not to the extent that you eliminate my work because my work can't be replaced, right? What I do every day can't be replaced. And that is absolutely true, right? Generative AI is, you know, compared to artificial general intelligence where you've got consciousness, which we are a long way from, it is just a tool. This talk about replacing wholesale people's roles will not come to fruition, right? It can't come to fruition because the technology can't do what a human being does. It can't experience things. It has no emotion. And most products and services are used by human beings and you need to connect to them, you know? And so that connection is going to be very, very important and we need to maintain that. So that's kind of my view on, on you know, where, where the talk isn't really matching the reality. Okay, so I understand labor unions are all about this, the Actors Guild. What about the other side, the actual auto companies or the movie studios? Have they bought into this, the need for an ethicist? Well, I think you're starting to hear a lot more talk about it. I think you are starting, if you do a, a fairly simple Google search, you'll actually see AI ethicist as, as, a, as a, a job title. Um, it wasn't uh, as predominant as it is today. Um, so you're going to see more of that. I do think the companies that take this seriously and want to signal to their workforce that they are doing everything they can to not only innovate how uh, one does their work, but also keep at the same time, you know, keeping the human being at the center of this, because it really is the most important. We've talked about this for years, right? The most valuable asset my company has is people. Well, now you need to demonstrate it. 
And by, by crafting a role like this, with this level of responsibility, this level of input across your different business streams, you are signaling to the market that you, you are doing just that, you know, putting the human in the loop, ensuring that your, your human workforce remains the most important part of your organization. So I do think you're going to see, um, you know, companies will create this role and it will certainly take some time. Again, these technologies aren't as well adopted as people think they are as, as much as, you know, you, you might read in, in the press. Um, the reality is it's going to take time. So, yeah, I do see this role um, propagating more businesses over the next 12 to 24 months. Interesting. What other roles do you see emerging? Yeah, I, I think other role, I think the one big one is going to be an AI curator. Uh, so if we think about, you know, the, uh, an individual, like I said, you know, we use the recruiter example in my world where they were writing job descriptions or they were, you know, doing some of this heads down, trying to turn unstructured data into structured data. And that's really what we're talking about. A curator is, is in that role, is really reading the data and, and is able to translate that. They're also able to do something along the lines of how do we automate some of these tasks, right? So if you, you think about a typical recruiting function uh, where there might be 50 to 100 steps between writing a job description, advertising it, you know, getting applications, interviewing a bunch of people, going through an evaluation assessment process, and then hiring someone. There's a number of steps that happen. You know, you know, AI sits in maybe 10 or 12 of those steps of 100, right? It's about 10, maybe 20% of each of those steps. A curator comes in and can actually say, here's where we want to leverage AI because it's better at this job to give better intelligence and information to the person who's in the next step. And we can automate that process. So it speeds things up. It removes and, and the, the black hole of, in this case, recruiting, makes it more transparent, moves things along faster, and actually can produce a higher quality outcome, you know, and all that. So there's huge benefits to it. But a curator is the one that says, I've studied your process and here's where it can plug in to get the outcomes that you're looking for. And then we can measure it and dynamically over time, it's going to change. New technologies, new innovations, new ways of doing things are going to change that. I'm the one that's going to be continually looking at those processes and curating those experiences with you as a business leader, or in this case, as a recruiter. Now, big question. When you look ahead five years or 10 years, how different is it going to look out there in the workplace? I think it's going to be very different. You know, the, the, I, don't, I really don't think it's a loss of jobs. I think it's a transformation and an elevation of more um, important human functions in work. Um, so here's what I see. In the next three to five years, I think every knowledge worker in any role in the world will be paired with an AI digital duplicate. So that co-pilot that we talked about before. You're starting to see a little bit of it now, but I think it, it will actually become a requirement of the job. In other words, your co-pilot will go with you from job to job. Now, obviously, you know we'll talk about intellectual property rights of a, of a previous employer and things like that. Of course, there have to be guardrails around those types of things. But just you as a person, you as a professional, um, you know, I'm a, a professional recruiter. I go from one job to the next. I can bring my cobot with me and say it plugs into the system. And this is the my assistant that's doing some of this heads down repetitive work for me. Um, it, and it maybe just needs to learn the brand and the culture and the values of that particular organization. But that's what I see. I see us all having this you know, very transportable digital assistant that that will live with us in all the work that we do, and it will learn over time. 
And it will also help us in our personal lives. Like this will, uh, no doubt, I mean, you're basically talking about, you know, the sort of I am robots, that movie with Will Smith, where you had a a, a robot literally living in your house doing things for you. This is all of that, except without the physical hardware, right? Because it'll be through our digital devices that we carry today, phones, watches, and, and other things. And so the next big iteration of this is Internet of Things. So Internet of Things is where we start to connect all of this deviceware around us. It's not a singular autonomous device. It's a network of devices that are providing that experience to us. So if you think of it this way, I wake up one morning, I go to my refrigerator and I've got a smart refrigerator and I'm a recruiter says, here's your list of things to do today. Do you want me to send some emails? Yeah, go ahead and do that. I get in my car, my car is connected to the internet of things and saying, Cliff, I sent those emails. I'm following up on some stuff. Do you want to do X and Y? Here's your schedule for for the day. It's literally going to follow us around. That, I promise you, you will see that in three to five years. This digital assistant, you know, that we personally own and connect with that goes with us in all the work that we do, um, will also be connected to all of our devices. Interesting stuff. Brave new world, I guess. Cliff, thanks so much for talking to me today. I appreciate it, Linda. Thanks for the opportunity. Cliff Yurkovitz is Head of Strategy at Phenom. Well, that's it for today. If you'd like to know more about Cliff and his work, please take a look at our show notes. You'll find some links there. If you'd like to get in touch with me, I'm on Twitter or X at at Relentless Eco. Now, if you did like this discussion about the future of work, please take a moment, leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. That will help people to find us and it will help keep these discussions going. Thanks so much for listening. And thanks as always to Stokely Audio for audio production. To learn more about work and the future and to see show notes, go to the workandthefuturepodcast.com. You can also contact us at comments at theworkandthefuturepodcast.com. The Work in the Future podcast with Linda Nazareth is a relentless economics production. Mm-hmm.